a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 93 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse that we know we all want to have, Mark Herleman. And with me like a Jedi whippet you just can't kill, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. And when you are a Jedi Whippet, you must whip it. Whip it good. Well, here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we explore Star Wars Dark Times Parallels by Dark Horse Comics. Now, before we get too deep into spoilery territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. You know, this is one that, honestly, when I first read it, I was reading it as singles. And... I think that's part of the downfall of Dark Times in a lot of ways. Granted, I think there's a lot wrong with the way the series is handled later. Uh, I don't wind up caring about most of the characters. Uh, it just feels like it's not what it should be or what it had the potential to be based on the first arc or so. But part of the issue, though, I think for a lot of people, is the delays. We, this is a series that had a lot of delays, both in terms of the time between arcs, which in some cases was on purpose, uh, and the time within uh, the, the single arcs, where you're going from issue to issue to issue uh, based on how long it took for all the issues to come out. There's stuff happening in the series right now in current issues that have direct connections back to some of the earliest issues. But it's been so freaking long since those issues came around and those things haven't been brought up very often that I think it's something that, you know, if there are intricate connections within the plot, a lot of times they get forgotten, they get missed. Uh, very much like I guess what you would have if you took something like John Jackson Miller's Knights of the Old Republic series and spaced it out more than it was. There's the hints that are given, but if it takes so long to get to the payoff that we forget about the hints, then it winds up not meaning a whole heck of a lot. In this case, what we get is an arc that read... Not very well, particularly, or at least not very interestingly, at least in my opinion, as individual issues, reads a little bit better as one individual story arc, and combined with the last arc, The Path to Nowhere, shows the potential of what this series could have been. Still not my favorite arc, but it shows the potential of what the series could have been, and then we get Vector, and everything just spirals out of control down the toilet from there for this series. Um... <laughs> I'm not a big Kukruk fan, 
To be honest with you, I think it's hard to relate to the character in many respects. This is probably the most relatable the character ever is in this arc. Um, I find it odd to see uh, the crew of the Uhumele, or however you're supposed to say it, um, without Das Janir there, since he is one of the Touchstone characters. He's one of the characters that made the jump from Republic to Dark Times to give us that connection and that uh, through line. He's not even in this arc. Um, it's an odd one. But I would say that overall, it's mostly an enjoyable one. You know, you mentioned, you know, how long it took. And I recall, like, I think it was around this time when they were doing that whole on again, off again. But they were very specific to say that Dark Times wasn't canceled, even though for all intents and purposes, it kind of was. I want to say that we went like a whole year where we only got one arc. Uh, and that was spread out throughout the year. And I, I don't know if that was this arc or if it was the last half of the first arc, but I think it was this one. But yeah, I heard that disconnect, like really threw it off. So when I grabbed it, I, I've got this one right now in the trade. Uh, but I remember going back over it and, you know, being kind of surprised with how much more the story connected. Whereas before, when I looked at this, I thought this one was going to be kind of a weaker story, but going back over it, I found it was actually a lot stronger than my first impressions were, but that could also be, I am a huge Kukruk fan. I know Nathan, you said you aren't, but I, I liked his character for, for me, that character is what really had the most emotional impact. Uh, I was rereading this with the family, uh, yesterday. And, you know, when I was reading through Kukruk's part, it, it teared me up, you know, because I, I just, I go around the world with things, you know, so I'm like explaining to my wife, you know, the situation he's in and what he just got done doing and everything. And then all of a sudden the betrayal and uh, it, I don't know, for me, I, I thought that this one was really good uh, use of the situations. It, it did a really good job of doing the Star Wars. Every, everything kind of ties together, but doesn't. Uh, there's a lot of threads that are that are sewn together that go from one group of characters into the other, but you, the reader, the only one that sees the larger tapestry. So I, I really enjoyed that about, about this one. We watch uh, Bomo Greenbart kind of come into his own, which you know you kind of saw it before, but he comes into his own in the sense of the Uhumel family. And I know I'm going to be butching that name because uh, you know you don't make a name as as unpronounceable as the unpronounceable ship and expect me to get it right, but that. I, when I was going through the reread, I had this feeling for the first time that the crew of the Umo was the crew of Serenity, uh, that the captain was, for all intents and purposes, kind of the uh, Malcolm Reynolds, that they were on the fringes of society, that they were, in a sense, the brown coats in a galaxy that's now dominated by the corporate group. So, it, it, I don't know. It, it was interesting when we got there and knowing where it goes as that plays into uh, – you know, the vector story arc and what exactly they have, because right now you don't exactly know the item, the smuggling group, the pirate group or whatever we're going to call the Humel group. Aside from family, they kind of got that uh, Fast and the Furious family vibe going. But we know what's going on and, and, and the deal that they're doing what's inside the cargo, what everyone's trying to get. And right now it's a big mystery. And I like that. But going back again, this is another one of those where you get more out of the reread than you do the first time through, or at least I did. And I enjoy that because I don't like grabbing a book that I've read once or twice and I may or may not have enjoyed it. But then on the reread, I'm just like, this really wasn't as good. I, I like grabbing a book. And when I'm going back through it going, man, I don't remember this being as good as it was like, this is, this is a lot better than I thought it was. And that was how I come away when I got done rereading this one. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was that I thought it was better. I mean, I think I, I think it's better reading it all at once. I'm not sure if time has really changed my perspective on it too much, but I will say it is kind of neat to see that there are some some things being laid out in this story 
that do wind up playing into things later, which makes me wonder how much of it was actually planned ahead of time and how much of it was at the end of this story saying, okay, where are our characters now and what can we do with them later? And then kind of doing that each time. Now, I think that's sort of the thing that you always run into when you're dealing with an ongoing series, especially when the series is made up of individual story arcs. You know, you don't know how many arcs you're going to get, how much into the future you can plan ahead. So, you know, how much of the seeding here was meant to bear fruit later. And if it was meant to bear fruit later, why not make this one of the series that appeared on a more regular basis? Because at this point, it's it's it was frustratingly stretched out. Well, speaking of fruit that bears later, uh, in the first panel, you know, we, we kind of go back to the Republic. Uh, I believe they're leaving uh, Salesicrum. Then uh, keeping it spoiler-free as best I can. Speaking of those fruits ahead, there is a moment here where it first starts out around Order 66 where Crux says something to Quinlan Voss. Uh, he goes, we'll meet again when the war is over, Quinlan. And, and I, you know, there's the part of me that wants to say that that's some prophetic little force use there of uh, Crux. Maybe he knows something that uh, Dark Horse Comics will produce later in the uh, future. I don't know. I've, I've always wanted to know what's going to go on with Quinlan's character, and it was nice to see him show up even though it was briefly, and they explain, you know, what goes on with him and where he ends up going. Uh, but I don't know. It was kind of a cool little twist there. And, you know, when I was rereading it, I was like, ooh, I wonder if that's a little bit of the force in motion. I do think that's interesting that you have two characters who managed to survive Order 66 in this scene, and they're the ones saying essentially, you know, goodbye. You don't have... Uh, Giselle, I think that's how you're supposed to pronounce her name, uh, Cyan Giselle, yeah, of course, given the first name. Giselle given the first name because of the whole miscommunication with the costuming with Jan Dersima's daughter and all that stuff. Um, but basically you've got her there and you've got Ayla Secura there, and neither of the women appear to speak. And instead what we get is Quinlan and Kukruk speaking, and they're the ones that are going to survive, and the ones not speaking at all, um, just kind of being spoken of, they're the ones who are going to wind up dying uh, so quickly uh, within this era, the ones that don't get further adventures. Although, there was a point at which uh, one of the source books, I want to say it was the New Essential Chronology, um, had said that Giselle was one of the characters to survive uh, forward past Order 66, though they wind up apparently dumping that uh, very quickly here back in, what was this, uh, 2007, I suppose? We've analyzed their attacks, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. All right, that gets us into spoiler territory. Um, to hit this kind of uh, more quickly, I hope, than some of our previous ones, because there's just not as much stuff going on, bear in mind that what you have here are literally parallel stories. There is no intersection between the story of Kukruk and the uh, younglings that he's with and the story of uh, the crew of the Uhumele, the crew uh, including Shirk Heron and his people, except for Das Janir, who of course is not with the group right now after the events of The Path to Nowhere, where he took out uh, the guy that ate Bomo's daughter. So we pick up with another story here by Mick Harrison slash Wells Hartley slash Randy Stradley, with new artist Dave Ross coming into the series here. Uh, they'll be switching artists back and forth depending on the tone they want for the series. As Mark said, we start with 
two and a half days before the issuance of Order 66, in which Kokruk is supposed to be heading soon to Maigito, which of course is where we see Ki Mundi die in Revenge of the Sith. Uh, we have Quinlan Voss noting that Ayla Secura is going to be on her way uh, to Felucia, where of course she dies in the film. And Quinlan is on his way to Boz Pity for, presumably, if it still exists, the story uh, Obsession, and then uh, onward to Kashyyyk, where he shows up in the uh, the comic adaptation, and then some of the, the, the later issues, of course, as we already know, with Republic uh, taking place around the events of Revenge of the Sith. It also, of course, is, you know, the, the line that we get in Revenge of the Sith about Quinlan Boss and all that stuff. So we've got, basically... A quick bit of dialogue to connect these events to events that we saw previously in Republic or that we saw hints of in Revenge of the Sith. And then that pushes us along. And for the first part of the first issue, we follow Kukruk and Giselle as they travel, supposedly, to Megito, only to wind up coming under attack. And they're forced to essentially crash down Um on one of the moons of, or one of the planets in the Bogdan system, I believe it's Bogdan 3. And at that point, they wind up meeting a group of Jedi students. Uh, they meet Jedi yeah, Master. They land at the Jedi training facility right. that's on Bogdan, which right. was, I thought that was a nice twist. Although it does seem weird, you know, given the whole moons of Bogdan with Tyrannus and all that stuff, it seems like an odd place to have the Jedi Academy there. Uh, if you're going to be choosing a place to put them and using a name reference to something that we've seen before. Um, but he meets Duman, who is the female Jedi Master there, with the Soaring Hawkbat clan, who are the youngling-slash-Padawan group that we're going to see with Kukruk so far through the rest of the Dark Times series, although generally we don't see that name popping up very often to describe that group. They're just the younglings that are with Kukruk. It's kind of cool to see uh, uh, the, the, wow, you know, uh, did that happen? When he points to a, one of the, the kids points to a, a damage on one of the clone troopers' armor. Did that happen? Did you get it fighting a droidica? Et cetera, et cetera. You know, they're all excited to hear more about the war. And we get this really cool moment in which we see Order 66 go down from a perspective we hadn't seen it from before. Here we've got Jacel, uh and Kukruk. They're eating dinner with the younglings and the other Jedi at this training academy. They're speaking, uh, Kukruk is speaking with one of the soldiers, one of the clone troopers, who's talking about, you know, wanting to not miss out on the end of the war, and basically bowing out of eating the nice, fun dinner uh, so that he can get back on duty. It is once he's putting his helmet back on that you start to see the different clone troopers, but it seems like they must be kind of nudging each other. Hey, put your helmet on. Uh, uh, we got a message coming in. Oh, yeah, and, they totally were. And we get the ones that, you know, yes, sir, even the younglings. Copy. And then the attack goes down, and we get a really cool sequence um, for a big chunk of this book in which Kukruk is going ballistic, killing clone troopers, trying to save the Jedi, uh, mm -hmm. and we get the great sacrifice by Giselle to cover their escape. But it feels missing something to me now. Back at the time, I think reading this, that was a cool sequence. Um, it's one of the few times I ever feel like we get any actual emotion at all out of the way that Kukruk is portrayed because you see the savagery on his face as this stuff is happening. Most of the time, I feel like he is a very unexpressive character because of the design of the way Whippet's heads are made. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but it Difficult plays out to express. well. But 
That this is 2007. What arrives in 2008? The Clone Wars cartoon, the film, and the television series. And in Republic, we got a lot of characterization of some of the clones. Not a ton, but some. In the cartoon series, we now have gotten all kinds of characterization for the clones, including people like Rex and such. And what what gets me about any time I see Order 66 now, especially when it's a group of clones who they've been trying to... uh, 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 introduce us to in the context of new Jedi Masters that we don't see necessarily in the films or anything like that. I'm waiting for characterization of the clones. I'm waiting to see their internal struggle over this, whether they have any kind of internal struggle, and how they deal with this. And there isn't any. It is completely absent. And I know that's the way it pretty much plays out in the film. They basically get their orders, and they just turn on the Jedi and kill them. Uh, case closed. But I would have hoped that in a series that is supposed to be a spin-off of Republic that did take the time to give some characterization to the clones, especially clones like Alpha, that this would be a time to get a chance to explore a little bit more of the clone psychology at this moment. Maybe mm-hmm. it would have caused us to be less sympathetic and less on the side of Kukruk if we had a little more characterization to the clones, but I think it would have made for a more complex story in yeah. this issue. And instead, I feel like it's just... Clones good, flip switch. Now clones bad, <laughs> clones must die. And that's such a a dull way, I guess, of doing it from the clone mm-hmm. perspective. Um, especially given that there's only, well, I'm going to say, there's only so many times you can return to the well of Order 66 and try to retell events in that story. But then again, how many times have they gone back to finding the Death Star plans, or yeah. <laughs> uh, Luke returning to, to Tatooine for the first time after the events, and how do we get the Death Star plans and do all the stuff heading into a, a Return of the Jedi? Uh, it just feels like it's missing that spark. It's a great sequence. It is the sequence that makes this story. Unfortunately, it's in the first issue, and it's all downhill from here, though at least not horribly so. Um, but I would well, have liked you know, to see a little a bit point. more. You got a point with the clone troopers. Like, I would like to see a clone-centric story arc called Troopers. And set it all in Order 66. Give us different troopers and different squads. And give us that, what, what Nathan's talking about. Because even this panel, you could you could have this scene be like one chapter in a trooper's arc. Where, you know, you're watching these troopers and they're putting their helmets on. And they're, like, discussing it. And the one bit he says out loud, you know, even the younglings, they could have a bit of dialogue. You know, yeah, hurry, quick. Because when this scene goes down, you're right. That is the one aspect that's missing. It's like all of a sudden they just they just turn. We know because we've seen Order 66. Uh, when I was reading this to my to my wife and kids, this is the scene that I was just choking up. I was in tears over. Uh, yeah, it, it's hard to show expressiveness with Kakruk. Uh, but there is a scene after it all starts where he's looking at Giselle right before uh, he tells her he needs to or she needs to go. Uh, where he looks very sad. He kind of looks like one of the mystics from uh, the Dark Crystal even. But when he's sitting there and the clones go copy, even the younglings, and he screams, he's like, no, and he jumps and he cuts that first clone in half and all the clones open fire. It, it's it's Piri and, and Giselle that that is what tore me up. I mean, Kruk, he's just going from relaxing to, you know, total shock. I, can't, I don't know what's going on and is stopping the butchering of the kids. And... Piri goes, what's happening? Why are they shooting? And Giselle goes, I don't know. Block their shots. And Piri goes, the younglings. And and this is where it got me because Giselle, the way it's all bolded, she's like, block the shots. And I just, I go to that moment of what these masters must have been like. You know, you're sitting in a school 
and all of a sudden, you know, these military soldiers, in a sense, it'd be like if you're sitting at a, like an elementary school and some Marines are there, you know, doing like some little regular thing. They're there with like a teacher or an ex-teacher, or an ex-Marine. They're all together. And all of a sudden, these Marines just start opening fire. I mean, you know, they have no idea what to do. And they're the only ones capable of protecting them. And mm-hmm. that just that moment, that's what really choked me up. I mean, when I when I read this, that's what gets to me is that 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 foreknowledge I have and you watch uh, you know Master Mon she's trying to deflect as many blaster bolts she shoves the clones back quickly make for the door and one of the clones shoots her in the back run younglings Master Ron and Kakruk is watching this you know over his shoulder after he cuts off another head Master Ron and the the clone turns the blasters and just starts shooting and murders like four or five of the ones right there Kakruk jumps again diving with the sl- the saber blade and stabs it right into the guy's chest and he's screaming why i'm just and that's when he goes ballistic and he starts cutting off heads and stuff he turns to the kids and it's blood red you know the the font is blood red big bold run he screams to the kids you know and he yells to giselle giselle head for the shuttle and she comes running up take Fury. somebody has to hold the door and that's where you see the the the, the sorrow on his face you know and, and that's that is hard with his face it's a very hard face to put emotions on and they really do it he's like giselle and she goes, you're the better pilot. Go. Save the younglings. She's deflecting the bolts. So he's running with the younglings. And then, of course, it goes to kind of like a, in her moment with the narrative. This is the kind of narrative that we were talking about the ninth assassin with Darth Vader that it would have been good if they just slipped this in. It goes, she's fighting off the clone. She's doing like a kick, got a blade swinging at the same time. The troopers will overwhelm her in a few seconds. Giselle knows. To the shadow, Kukruk runs. Then they'll be after Kukruk and the younglings. But maybe there's a way to stop them, all of them. She grabs onto a stormtrooper or a clone trooper that's got a grenade. The trooper holds a thermal detonator. A simple push with the force triggers it. And she ignites it and it blows. And of course, Kakruk, Giselle! And then, you know, it goes to Piri. Master Giselle, we have to wait for her. Giselle is not coming. And then, of course, Piri goes, the troopers, why did they attack us? I don't know. Will they follow us, do you think? I don't know. And the look of just pure freaking heart-wrenching sorrow on Kukruk. I mean, again, because it's hard to capture. They did a really good job in these panels. Where will we go? And then it says so many questions. The only one answer, I don't know. And for me, that moment, uh, being Kukruk, that tears me up. I mean, here you are. You're only stopping here, you know, to pick up resupplies, get your ship fixed, and your own troopers just butchered all those Padawans, and you can only save a portion of them, and on top of it all, once again, for poor Kukruk, another Jedi sacrifices themselves so he can escape and take people to safety. And that, I mean, for me, that's the part about this character that just, I, I love what this story did for the character. He's a character I enjoy, but these moments are what makes him somebody I really enjoy a lot. I think you got a point there with the whole thing with, you know, the way this works as far as it being a school. I mean, this is very much... Uh, it, it makes it a more gut-wrenching type of experience here because when we're dealing with most of the Jedi, I've always had one issue with Order 66, and that is the Jedi didn't sense any danger. A whole bunch of Jedi... Granted, the Jedi are surrounded by clone troopers. I get that. And sometimes we see Jedi paired up with their clone troopers. They weren't able to escape. They weren't able to super leap or super run out of the way. It seems odd to me that it seems like when Order 66 goes down, so few Jedi manage to escape. Now we know, of course, because of the way the EU works, there's Jedi seeming to be all over the freaking place in the classic (laughs) trilogy era. 
So yeah. certainly many of them must have survived just by by the way the logic works. But it's one well, of these and, things and logically where, when you think about if they're in the middle of a battle sense, you know, like take Kai Adamuni, you know, he's in the middle of charging in the battle. Wouldn't the battle sense be triggering and wouldn't mm -hmm. you just bring that lightsaber around and deflect from the clone, not even paying attention to who was actually shooting? You're, yeah. you're responding to the danger, right? Pretty much. I mean, but in this case, though, when you take it out of the perspective of adult, highly trained Jedi Knights or Jedi Masters, that's when it becomes more of an outright slaughter because these kids don't have a way to defend. And these are the people that they are expected, as we see when they meet here at the, at the academy and everything, they are, they are, I don't want to say programmed or indoctrinated, but they're taught from a young age that certain individuals are authority figures. Like these days, you know, what happens if a child, you know, what happens if you're stuck in the middle of a shopping center and you lose track of your parents? You go to a police officer, et cetera, et cetera, that type of thing. That makes this all the more difficult. Although I will say there is definitely some sloppy storytelling going on at one point of this. It's a masterfully done sequence, except when they're getting their orders and the reason why Kukruk realizes what's going on is not just that we see the clones pulling out their blasters, but one of the clones says, yes, sir, even the younglings, copy, apparently out loud. Everybody else is getting their instructions inside the helmet. This is the one idiot who manages not to turn the speaker off on his helmet, <laughs> and that's how Kukruk knows. I mean, I think we're supposed to get the sense that maybe he also sensed danger and such from the little lines with his no response yeah. at the bottom. But well, They could have easily slid that in, too, just before he yeah. felt a premonition in the Force or something. Because, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that the death of the Jedi would be staggered a millisecond apart or something. And it's funny because you, he says... You know, it's the, uh, uh, even the younglings, yes, sir. And all that we get to hear from the trooper, and that gives it away. And through the entire fight, while he's cutting them apart, you don't get any arg, uh, ah, kind of stuff coming from the troopers, because apparently their speakers must be off. <laughs> the commander's like, shut the speakers up. off! Look at Joker, he's a jackal! Man, <laughs> if that guy didn't, if he didn't get killed, he would have been in KP duty for a month. Uh, <laughs> In any event, okay, so we've got this great sequence, and we move from there into the frantic chase going on two months later on the planet Piscos. Uh, I guess that's kind of like pish, posh. Uh, I think I think usually for me the Piscos is that uh, I've drank too much Dr. Pepper, um, but that's just me, the Piscos. Um, and we see the crew without Das Janir of the Uhumele, or however you were supposed to pronounce it, running on that planet having apparently pulled off some kind of heist, and oopsie, they forgot to change the ship's transponder after the events of the previous arc, and that's getting them chased by what appear to be stormtroopers. They're like stormtrooper armor with weirdly drawn helmets that are kind of like the, the first clone helmets and kind of like the later ones and kind of like stormtrooper ones, but not really much uh, uh, locked in for any one of those. It's like blending the features of each one. And we see Ratty and Bomo and Jenks running for it. Uh, well, two of them running for it and running into Jenks. And as the other two, the two little ones, manage to escape, Jenks gets surrounded and picked up by the stormtroopers. Um, they get back to the ship where Sniffles and Chris Tanzier um, are given the order to launch, um, but they have to leave Jenks behind in Imperial custody. And I gotta say, I expected that to be something that this story would then pick up with, that part of the rest of the story would be them figuring out how to save Jenks. But it's like Jenks disappears into a freaking black hole in this story, <laughs> and he doesn't wind up getting to really 
reemerge again until much later. We see him here. He briefly appears in Vector. He briefly appears, at least within flashbacks, in Blue Harvest. But we don't actually get to see what happens to him in Imperial custody until out of the wilderness. And that's quite a ways away, especially given the fact that this is a series where individual arcs are delayed, they're spaced out. Um, Jenks getting captured here, by the time that we finally get to see him again in Out of the Wilderness, I'm like, okay, this was a friend of theirs from where he was captured yeah. when? And rereading this reminds me, it's the same thing as like what we get in, um, I guess it was Out of the Wilderness, where we find out that, the, that this bounty hunter that is trying to track down uh, Das is doing it on behalf of the family of the guy who ate Bomo's daughter, who was killed by Das back in the first story arc. But by the time we get to the story arc in which that starts to matter again, it's been so many years between stories, half a decade about between stories, that we've got to go back and remind ourselves of this. I mean, this was something I remember being that Dark Times is a pain in the butt for me to go back and, and summarize for the Star Wars Timeline Gold, because I almost got to go back and reread my summaries for the previous arcs to remember who some of these characters are that they're referencing because it's just like they expect all this stuff to be connected together in this intricate web. And I guess maybe they're expecting us to pull what I guess you did. You said you did a lot of times with the new Jedi order and what I did with the Thrawn trilogy each time a new book came out, which is to somehow go back and reread the entire series before you read the new arc. So you can put all these pieces together because it's certainly something that is stretched out so long that a lot of the subtlety gets lost. The subtlety is there. I'll give it that. But the subtlety gets lost over such a long period of time. So we end this issue with what should be one of the most momentous things in leading up to a future arc, Jenks captured by the Imperials, but it just kind of fades out of existence as part of this story and doesn't come back for so long that it the, the impact is lost on me in a lot of ways. Well, in this case, it's almost like the impact is more set up for the individual issue because it ends with the captain saying, you know, uh, Bomo goes to the captain. What will happen to Jenks? I don't know, young Greenbark. I don't know. And that kind of seems to be like the the both stories right now are in a place where they have no idea what they're going to do or how they're going to get where they're going to go. For me, the parallels were Kukruk's character and Bomo. When we get into the next arc or the ne the next issue here. Uh, it, it's a moment, and this is another one I, I read to the kids because I just I, I found these were great, powerful moments for the characters because of what had happened before. And it's got Bomo. He's kind of he wakes up from a nightmare, and it goes, "If you've lived through your worst nightmare, you would expect that your life afterward could only get better." But Bomo Greenbark knows this to be false. Such hopeful thinking ignores the ever-present anguish and regret, the cruel knowledge that if you had done things differently, made other choices, events might have played out better, and your wife. And your child might still be alive. He wakes up, Risa, knowing that the worst has already happened and that what is past is beyond change or repair. It is nothing to lessen the guilt that you weren't there when your wife died protecting your daughter or that you arrived too late to save your child from dot, dot, dot. And he gets up and starts throwing up in the bathroom, which is another cool moment for you uh, refresher fans. You can see what a refresher looks like here. Here's another panel. It's uh, page 31 in your trade paperback of Dark Times Parallels. So don't say that they never gave us bathrooms because I used to say that. But, uh, you know, and then it continues. No, the nightmare isn't over if you relive it every night. If the past overwhelms the now, even when you're awake and he realizes, you know, that, that the ship's not moving, he comes running in and the whole crew is around this box, which 
in the vector storyline, you'll you'll know exactly what is in this box. But this is the moment where I kind of realize that that things have a serenity feel here. Uh, they're trying to sell the contents of it. Of course, the captain he goes, "You see." Greenpark, uh, Momo, we have in our possession a piece of cargo of considerable value. If And we have uh, found a buyer willing to pay our asking price. I finalized the details of the exchange while we were on Pizar. But the thing is, I don't entirely trust their buyer, and I want to take certain safeguards should he attempt to take our cargo and uh, withhold payment. So they're going into an asteroid belt, and they're securing this crate to it and the way they go about it like i don't know it just reminds me of the beginning of the serenity movie uh from firefly and all that fun action well but you get this well that go- plus the fact that you know we will find in vector that their mysterious cargo is a girl in a box that's true i didn't you know think just, about that just as like they- river tam <laughs> and and this one instead of being able to kill you with her brain she can with the amulet she wears and possibly her brain because she is a force user and such but i, I you're right they, yeah. they're it's good commentary on Bomo here. It would have been nice if this issue's art weren't all over the place with Dave Ross and Louis Antonio. Um, It seems like they can't figure out what some of these aliens' faces are supposed to look like, especially Bomo. His snout size, the, the shape of the sides of his face tend to change throughout this issue, let alone throughout the series, but throughout this issue, they yeah. tend to change. And this is where I'm thinking... Oh, they had a cargo back when I first read this because it's mentioned back in the first arc, but there's not really a lot of attention paid to it. And now it's like, oh, yeah, see, yeah, here is this thing that we had from last story arc that, you know, that we need to pick up with. Uh, And we see that Bomo's kind of on the outs with the family, like they trust him, but not too far. And he understands and he goes off and goes sits with Chris in the uh, cockpit. And this is a nice moment because it kind of brings her into the fold. You start to get some background on her. And it also has a tie-in to Kakruk's story. And it's them beating us over the head with, damn it, you're going to care about this stereotypical blonde-haired white lady with the boobs. Damn it, you're gonna. You're gonna. Because otherwise the emotional impact of what's going to happen in the next story arc is going to be lost on you. So we're going to smash you over the head with a reason to care about this character who otherwise is getting fluff characterization. This is our one real instance of giving her characterization. It's all told through a flashback. Um, we get the flashback to uh, her planet Nadium, uh, N-A-D-I-E-M, where because the Republic said they were going to protect this world, which really wasn't taking a side in the war, the Separatists come and you wind up with this massive uh, assault in which her husband is killed and a Jedi approaches and notices that uh, her son is Force-sensitive, uh, Kenan. And the idea is that, you know, you, I may not be able to save you, but I could save your son and get him to the Jedi Temple. I could prioritize his evacuation. Um, I just don't know what's going to happen to you. And it works out well in the sense that he's able to get out of there. But as far as she knows... He's now dead. You know, she she makes the argument that she didn't guarantee him a future, as the Jedi said. She guaranteed him death because, of course, once they got out of there, she manages to survive. And yet she believes that he was with the Jedi at the Jedi Temple because, of course, you can't track your kid once they join the Jedi Order. They're basically taken away from you for good. Um, And they assume that he is there 
when the so-called Jedi Revolt takes place, because of course all she knows is what she's heard from uh, from Das and what she's seen on the news reports and whatnot. She didn't like Das because apparently of this. Um, and well, yeah, and her son, the... her son's at a training center, but it doesn't establish that he could be on any of a few in the in the galaxy. She just assumes yeah. he's on Coruscant, and she goes. And then news came of the Jedi Revolt, and reports said all the Jedi had been killed, including the younglings. Right, and of course. This is when Bomo has to explain what Das told him, that the Jedi didn't betray the Republic. The Republic turned on them because they would have objected to the Empire. Um, and in him trying to protect Das, which is not something that you know he would have done until just recently he's kind of come to terms with his anger at Das, um, you know, Chris just gets so angry about him defending Das that she just walks out. And I find it amusing that, again, this is another instance of where the art is not particularly consistent. We go from her... Looking like herself to looking kind of mildly Asian, um, partly because they're just drawing the eyes very wide and not a lot of other facial features. So I don't want to say maybe Asian is not the right word for it, more of an anime style look to her. Uh, and then apparently as she gets mad and walks out on Bomo, she's so mad that she grows suspenders to hang from her hips that didn't exist in any of the previous shots of the character. So that's a very mad woman who can spontaneously uh, create suspenders. You got to watch out for that. You could use those to hang you. And of course, <laughs> any of these, any of the, I, I don't know if this has played out well or not. Um, the emotional impact of that, my son is dead kind of stuff is immediately used for emotional impact again when we see one of the kids from the clan that was saved by Kukrook jumping you know around through the uh the the jungle trying to get some fruits and whatnot and they say kenan tanzir down now and the we master, realize i can almost reach the fruit yeah and if you fall i can almost save you i, I like that. that that works really well <laughs> as far as like a parental thing but the fact that he is still alive is immediately apparent and i don't know if this is something that should have been revealed at that moment it works as a great sort of jump between the two a nice transition it's the the visual wipe that we get between the two sides of the story in this issue but at the same time that might have been something that would have made sense to reveal later um given the well, fact really that we're quick, not going on your suspenders though uh they only dropped it for a couple panels because when she's first introduced she has them when she's drinking the cup of coffee they colored them in no they're actually there there's one on the side of her right butt cheek and then one going across the top of her left thigh but they're not m very detailed they're just slightly colored there and then they disappear while yeah, they I do the flashback you don't see them they're not there again until she stands up and she's not they're not really there when she first stands up but yeah, when she turns and runs again, then they're back. So two you, panels question. there, they disappeared. Are you reading the trade paperback or the individual issues? I'm in the trade. so Because I sure as hell am not seeing it. I am seeing the first shot we see of her where Bomo comes in and sees them with the, with the, the uh, sarcophagus-looking thing. She's got them. And then we see yeah. her sitting there drinking. Well, uh, we see her still standing there, and she's still got them. And then as soon as she – it goes to shortly where they're in the cockpit, you don't see them, and then you keep yeah, going that through one, that. That don't one is see there them. on mine, but it's it's literally like somebody took two spaces in line and colored where they should be. They don't look like they're drawn there. They just look yeah, like there's, there's in like the a middle of the pant. Blotch. Yeah, on both legs. It's like, okay, somebody went back in and added the color. <laughs> but then she gets up whenever she's mad, and they're gone again. Yeah, and then she walks, and they mad. reappear. Um, so – 
I don't know. This would have been interesting to be something where maybe this could have brought these two storylines together. Uh, the question of whether her son could have survived and and uh, and maybe a search for them. But they're giving us this emotional impact now so they can essentially – and I don't think this is a, a spoiler that's going to cause anybody to get angry because these books have been out for many, many years now. Um, they're doing this to give us emotional impact for when Chris dies in the very next arc, never running into her son again. And this son just becomes – one of the other mostly nameless, featureless young Jedi who are with Kukruk throughout the rest of the series, all the way up through the recent Fire Carrier arc. But it, it feels like it is a wasted opportunity. I don't know if it should have been stretched out longer, but it certainly feels like it's one of these things that it's almost like a, a ship's passing in the night type of thing. Mm -hmm. It's not something I – mean, it feels like it should be something major. That is within this series to tie these together because they're setting up Chris and giving us this background so we think she must be a major character going forward. Um, and instead, it's one of these sort of like brief little little moments. It's almost like, you know, you would think with them turning the character that we see in Mos Espa in Phantom Menace into Quinlan Vos and giving him all this background that we would have got some interesting adventures uh, that coincided with his appearance there in Phantom Menace that would have developed that into something much bigger because that's the way we're used to seeing things with like the Tales from books doing with characters from the classic trilogy. And instead, we barely ever get anything like that, and it's just kind of one of those, oh yeah, he was there too, kind of thing. kind of fills a minority, though. I mean, because in a sense, by the time she does die in the next arc, she dies with the sense that the Jedi weren't as good as she originally thought. And so it kind of proves that there were those people out there that even though that wasn't the situation, she went to her grave thinking that was truth. Uh, you know, cause I, I too, that, that ships in the night kind of thing. Like I was thinking, you know, they were building up, we were going to see something there. And that was a, a very big moment of missed opportunity. But at the same time, we're in a comic called dark times. And that does kind of feel the title of that ah moment. You know, you, the reader are getting the most impact, knowing how close they were, knowing that the Jedi once again did the right thing. Uh, but speaking of the Jedi real quick, I, I like the little attention to detail. Kakrux standing there when, uh, when Keenan's up in the tree and he's got his shirt off and you can see the uh, cut wound that he got from Grievous in the Clone Wars series. Uh, I thought that was a cool little uh, touch. It's like a little cross and you see later uh, he'll have it again in another scene where it shows up. But for the most part, they don't show it at all, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, you know, Kakrux always had this uh, little Chinese style rice paddy hat. Now it's gone. He's got his hair up kind of in a braid. Uh, you know, they're on the planet, and he's, he's thinking about it. He's like, so much has changed in the past two months. When, then he had a war to fight and responsibilities to an entire galaxy and the Jedi Order. Now, this group of younglings is his only worry. Kruk is not sure which burden has weighed more heavily on him. And, you know, he, they're looking down. He's looking across the field, and he sees where the shuttles crashed and how they've kind of scavenged a bunch of parts off and created a new little campsite out of it. Uh, so when they first arrived, crash landed on this world. The wounds of betrayal and the personal loss he had suffered were still raw. At that time, Kukruk desired only solitude, or, though he hates to admit it to himself, to lash back at the Sith and their minions. And, of course, you know, he's trying to do the right thing. Uh, you know, he's, like, going out of his way to say things that isn't exactly what's going on in his mind, but he's trying to keep the rest of the group at bay, uh, at ease, at peace, so they don't know, you know, the, the worries that he has and stuff like that. Uh, you know, I don't know. For me, I I'm, I really enjoy this perspective because, you know, Kukruk's a character that in certain books, certain guides and stuff, we find out that he joins up with Luke and Luke's order sometime after the New Jedi Order. 
uh, that he's been hiding with a group of, of younglings, although I don't believe at this point that they're younglings at that time. Uh, but he's got a group. He's got his own group of Jedi that he managed to smuggle out. So we're kind of under the assumption that this is going to be them. Uh, and so far, I mean, it does look like that has been the case. But Kirk doesn't show back up in any of the books. You know, he's only mentioned a few times. So this is kind of like his furthering tale. You you know later, if you've read the Legacy books and Legacy Volume 2, that he's still alive. He's actually in a, a position of power in the Jedi Order. So this is your moment of how did he get from there to there? Because, you know, if, if what's going on with the EU is going to be uh, an on-hold Till episode seven, the odds of us ever getting a book with Kakruk showing up in Luke's orders are very, very small now, which really saddens me. Yeah, maybe we'll get a nice little uh, side story uh, in the Star Wars Insider, a little whippet on the prairie or something, Ooh. given the way this all plays out. Um, no, but I think at that point, a lot of my interest in this arc starts to wane because it seems like the most interesting stuff was the Order 66 stuff. And what happened with Chris's background. It kind of feels like this is where things start to just kind of become ho-hum for me. Even though it's action-packed, it just doesn't have the same emotional resonance. They took all the emotional resonance of this arc and crammed it into the first two issues, uh, or the first issue and a half. So the rest of it somewhat fades for me. It becomes basically the story of, as we switch to Mimban, a day after we see Kukruk and them you know, having lived for two months on this planet... Um, it switches over to the deal, the uh, the exchange that's supposed to take place between uh, Shirk Heron's crew and this guy named uh, Hai, uh, Haka Hai. And Haka Hai has apparently hired in some muscle for this meeting, uh, including a man by the name of Lumbra. It's Lumbra and his goons and such. And as they arrive for this meeting... There is a double end and a triple cross that takes place when the entire crew apparently decides they're going to head out to this meeting instead of leaving anyone on, you know, the ship for any kind of security. I thought that was a little bit odd. Um, but rather than being able to just make the deal, and the plan was to simply hand over the, cont- the, the container that doesn't have the real object in it, um, get paid, and then reveal the location of the real object. Instead, Haka Heist men don't plan on paying, so they pull weapons on the crew. Only for Lumbra and his people to pull their weapons and switch their targets to Haka High, basically betraying him uh, and taking off with that, or, or planning to take off with that cargo. And it winds up becoming sort of a three-way running battle between Haka High and his limited forces, uh, Lumbra, who's trying to escape with the goods, and our crew, who gets a very Marvel-esque final shot uh, of this issue, charging forward into combat, uh, where, yeah, it, again, the artwork starts to wane. I mean, you, you, I can't stress enough how much the art can sometimes make or break a story. If you go back to the first pages of this issue, um, the third page of issue number two shows Shirk Heron, and it's one of the few times I see that character... And I sort of get what they're trying to do with his face and the way he's supposed to look. And I get it, and I like it. I think it's a cool design for the way they've got him looking almost like dog-like, snout-like there with the uh, with the hair coming down on the side of his face and how his face is supposed to look from the side and all that kind of stuff. Looks great. Then you get to the last couple pages of this issue, and it's like yeah. any detail for these characters is completely washed out. Uh, there is a panel... Or the, the page in which the others turn their guns, it starts with, ah, I see, 
same old Haka. <laughs> There's no detail on that page. Everybody well, when, loses when the captain their facial goes, definition. When he says remain calm, his eyes like shrink. It's like what happened to his face? The angle they take of him, it changes everything about him. I'm like, what is going on with the art? <laughs> remain calm. It's okay. These aren't the characters that you were caring about supposedly for the last arc and a half. These are stand-ins. It's, it reminds me of – it makes me think that we're going to see Haka Heisman or Lumbersman turn around and pull the space balls thing. You know, these are not them. You've captured the stunt doubles. <laughs> well, Hawkeye High actually looks like a kid's drawing, I, and I and I hate to say it, but oh, yeah. when you look at his face all the way through it, and he gets worse. It's like there are times where I'm like, man, this looks like something my son could have drawn. <laughs> and he looks crazy evil on the cover of issue number eight, which is part three. But for that moment, it's like, what? And and the art oddities continue forward as we go to the next issue, part three, because it starts with the same. It's that Louis Antonio with Dave Ross both doing the art. And for the crew, the artwork is god-awful um, for this part. I think what got me was I, I was reading this, and I realized by the time we got done with this arc that they don't know what they want to do with Chris Tanzier. Uh, they basically want to make her the blonde hottie with the boobies from time to time, and other times they want to make her an emotional character. So she goes from looking like a vacant-eyed brainless bimbo sometimes to looking like a strong female character who's given as much definition to her facial features and emotional look on her face as the other characters are. And part of me wonders if the reason why they get rid of her later is so they could bring in Ember because they weren't going to bother to do any differentiation between the two uh, Caucasian female long hair, light hair colored characters and they had to get one out of the way very much like Lucas saying, well, we can't have two Anakins running around, kill Anakin Solo, not Jason Solo uh, in Star by Star kind of stuff. But one of the instances where her artwork makes no sense, look at the first panel of issue number three. They're running. Find some cover. She has a teeny tiny body from the waist up an enormous ass and these huge tree trunks of legs and somehow it looks like one of her knees is bending the opposite direction that human knees do what oh it's because it's because of the way they've got her boot that's actually her right foot not her left foot where her left foot is knee back you see the other one coming down and it looks like there's a joint in the armor that's actually where her pant legs come between the two pair of boots but yeah, that's that's definitely not very thick there. Well, I I, I was interesting about what you said about Amber because Wait, it's I like, have to I have to ask though mm -hmm. if that's it. Unless what we're seeing in the same color as the background, just to the right of about halfway down the bottom portion of leg of the person running behind her, unless that's supposed to be the bottom of that other boot's foot, where in the hell is the rest of that leg that's supposedly bent? Yeah, that's it. That's supposed to be it. Which again gets so to the, the colorist, the angles Alex are just... Wald. Alex Wald is the one who's doing this because he's now done this twice with her. The screwed up, um, uh, what you call screwed up, uh, uh, suspenders. Suspenders, which again are gone here. Um, and now the vanishing leg because he's coloring it wrong. Yeah. Yeah, because he colored the bottom of the shoe the same color as those crates. Well, the, the thing that's interesting, you said, you know, she reminded you of of Amber here when. They shoot at her. Sniffles jumps in. You know, Chris, get down. It's almost like they decided to shoot her character. And then we're like, well, no, we'll make her a romance. And at that time, that was the, the idea was we'll make her a romance down the road. 
But then they were like, well, whoever was working on Vector already had done something with her character. And they're like, well, we better bring in someone else now because that kind of threw a crimp in our love story. Because it's like, why not just kill her now? I mean, because Sniffles' character, like, you almost got an emotional impact out of her reactions with Sniffles throughout the last two comics and the last uh, issue. Because it's like, they had a couple little moments, but not really enough to really care. Like, enough to get why he would jump and take the bullet, but not enough to care for his death. And this, again, falls into the over-sexualization of characters who don't need it. The We're going to put a character in who's a female for eye candy. And granted, the artwork here is not all that great, so I'm not sure that eye candy fits. But take a look. Once this firefight is going, as Sniffles is trying to save her, it's like all of a sudden in those panels, her body has decided to go into – you remember Reebok pumps? You could pump the <laughs> yes. shoe, and it would get tighter on you. It's like somebody said, oh, no, we're running into battle. Go pump, pump, pump. And all of a sudden, her chest gets enormous. She has cleavage that they make sure is visible in each shot. And when they show her from the side helping out Sniffles, you wonder how she stands up. And none of that is necessary, and none of that is what we see in further developments of the character. It's just this one artist. And if you think this is, well, this isn't them trying to be – uh, to be sexist or anything like that. This is them trying to sexualize a character. All they're doing is giving her female physical features. She's an athletic woman, and well, if she's going to wear something like a tank top, of course, a little bit of cleavage will show from the top. If you don't, that is unrealistic. But then... Wait, 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 wait. It says nothing about the G-string. There is a G-string hanging up on the side. What the hell? <laughs> but wait, but wait, wait, wait. Go, yeah, that is true. She does have the little G-string on the side. I didn't even notice that part of it. But no, wait until you get to the page in which she is cradling him uh, in her arms when Hakahai realizes, wait a second, why aren't you more concerned over your losses, realizing that there had been a switcheroo? If you look at Chris, they've drawn her to oh, have bullet my, nipples. Oh my god, you're right. <laughs> they've drawn her so she's pointing at poor Sniffles. You don't need to do that unless you are purposely over-sexualizing this character. And you can't tell me, well, that's just because of the way it was colored or something. The lines that the coloring is being used with, the lines include that feature. She's excited. It's cold outside on Mimban right now. You don't need that. And look how tiny her waist is, too. It's It's like they erased where her original waistline was, and we're like, no, we need to make her a little Ethiopian more. Something like it. Just It's one of those things where... It feels like – and you don't, see, you don't see this as much with male characters. You see it every great once in a while with someone like Cade Skywalker. But almost never do you see male characters portrayed that way. And I'm not saying I want to see male characters portrayed that way. I just want to see characters not given sexualization simply for the purpose of the sexualization. It's, it's very much like the boob window on Ahsoka Tano. Um, it, it's not something that necessarily adds anything. I mean I'm – you know, say what you will about how cool the design was for Darth Talon and how she uses her sexuality against Cade. I don't think for a moment that the original intent of Darth Talon was to make her that sexualized so that she could have that role with Cade in Claws of the Dragon in Legacy. I think it was just how do we make someone who's going to attract male viewers who are thinking with their pants? And I'd like to think that that in terms of the media, we were at least somewhat better than that as a society and as a readership, especially when it comes to science fiction, which is supposed to be a more learned person's genre, but usually gets stereotyped into, well, these are the people who need to see boobies because these are, you know, the nerds and they're not getting laid. It it just, it it bothers me. It, It shows to me, I think, that 
whoever did that part of the art doesn't seem to have respect. I'm not sure if it's for the character or for the audience or both, but it was unnecessary, uh, especially if the goal of this scene was to get across the emotional impact. You don't need sexualization to get across the emotional impact. The emotional impact is, oh my God, Sniffles, who may have been killed because his name was unpronounceable, uh, Linaliskar Kura Sniffle-Nimada, a.k.a. I guess Snuffleupagus. Um, it's supposed to be the emotional impact of, oh my God, he's dead, not, oh my God, he never got a chance to tap that. That's not the emotion you're supposed to be going for here. The scene itself is emotional when read as it stands. But as soon as you start analyzing the artwork, it, again, the artwork doesn't serve the story. It detracts from it. How many times have we said that recently? Well, I mean, even even when you go to the next scene when, when uh, Chris is standing there, I mean, it's like the cutaway on the shirt. It's only there on the tank top just so you can see the fact that she's got hips and, yes, she does have G-string coming up over the sides of it. And it's like... I, I don't understand why we need to see the, the lady character's underwear. I mean, that just like, I, I don't know. Ladies, is there a reason? Are we just, are we being too, uh, I don't know, over, overly sexual on this or, 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 or looking for things? I, I don't know. Like, do we have the problem? <laughs> I, I think this is, and we see this every once in a while in Star Wars. Thank goodness not as much in Star Wars as you do in some other sci-fi franchises. Um, I think Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles with, uh, a summer glow, for instance, um, that at least we don't get this all the time in Star Wars, but it's done enough that it's grating, and this becomes our, yes, it sort of fits the story. Maybe it's a warm world. She's running around in the tank top. She's like the, uh, she's the pilot. She's kind of the rough and ready one. She's not going to wear all kinds of fancy dresses and stuff. She'll dress all kind of, you know, uh, 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 functional, so to speak, and that sort of thing, and that makes sense. Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense that she's functional, but this is the equivalent of the Star Trek Into Darkness moment, where it's, yeah, it makes sense that apparently Carol needs to go on the shuttle and change clothes to go help McCoy with the torpedo and all, but we don't need to see it. Is it there just so that we can see Kirk um, looking when he shouldn't be looking and give us a, a nudge to his piggishness, despite the fact that we already saw him in bed with the two cat ladies earlier? Um, is this our well, equivalent of needing to see that just like we needed to see uh, Uhura in a bra uh, while he was hiding under the bed back in the first uh, reboot? See, track? I want to address that real fast because I, I'm on a halfway fence with that. I felt like they did that because in the original timeline, she had his kid. So that was like the one reason why his piggishness because we saw him sleeping with two little cat ladies at the beginning why that pig would actually be interested enough in her to maybe potentially still have that kid later if they decide to follow that plot line only but, only if but they that was still for uh, yeah, that, I... that was that was me from knowing stuff from outside of it making that application and 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 apologizing for it in that sense because plot wise they gave you nothing there it was just a here 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 Strip naked. And that's and, and they, they do balance it out by saying, well, in a deleted scene that you didn't see, Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, a.k.a. Harrison slash that other name that should not be named except they name it on the frickin' Blu-ray case and spoil it, um, that character, well, he was, he was stripped down mostly naked too. You just didn't see that because we cut it from the final film. I'm not sure that makes it better. Um, but it's the same type of thing. <laughs> I'm not sure it makes it better if we see this sometimes with male characters, which is rare. It just feels like it's an unnecessary bit. I know we're, we're focusing too much on it. We talked about this before, but this is another of those instances 
And I, I wonder which artist it was that made the decision. Suffice to say, all right, so uh, they've, they've been found out, oh, there was a switcheroo that has been made. We see Lumber's crew flying, and one of his men sneaks a glimpse inside the container that they've got. It turns out that it's booby-trapped, and kaboom, um, their ship is damaged. They're going to wind up crashing, ironically, on the same planet that Kakrook and his people are on. Whereas uh, Shakaran's crew, at least the four, according to Bomo, even though Bomo isn't one of them, uh, that know the information about the, the, the location of the real object, the four are being brought into custody and being uh, tortured. Bomo was just kind of being, you know, uh, self-sacrificing here, and the fact that the others are like, you know, we'll take it to our graves and everything is basically putting everyone else in danger. So Bomo makes it a point to make sure that Ratty and Chris aren't going to wind up being brought in on this. I mean, granted, Ratty's going to be stuck working on the ship with an enormous, uh, basically literally a ball and chain keeping him in that position, and they're going to take Chris because, well, she's a woman and she's kind of hot. Um, they're going to put her into slinky clothing and have her serving drinks because what else are you going to do with a woman who's a captive who's not homely? Um, See, Bomo, Bomo took a, a risk there. I mean, I get why he did it, but this Hakai guy is – or Hakakai or Kayahaka or whatever Shaka his Khan. name is. Yeah, Shaka Khan. He's such a – such an evil guy, like, I wouldn't have put it past him just to torture Chris in front of him just because she's soft and beautiful, you know, just to, to mutilate her because that would have made them talk. Like, I'm surprised that that didn't happen or that thought never went through their mind. There is a moment, though, while uh, the Captain Hearn's getting uh, tortured where he pulls on the chains and they make note in the drawing to show one with one chain with a line and then in the next image they zoom in on it and almost – all the way through the chain is that line, but it's only a little bit attached, and you see chink, and you don't see that again until later. And I, I like that because it was it was like a moment that played into an escape down the road, and I was like, oh, okay. Because at the time, I was like, well, what the heck was the point of that? But then they play on it later, and it was like, okay, I get you. Yeah, definitely a story that needs to be read all at once. Um, suffice to say, the ship comes crashing down, uh, or it's going to be crashing down. They managed to land, but they're going to need some parts. And they've spotted the ship that was crashed by Kakrook and the, the other Jedi. And they figure, hey, this is our chance. You know, we can go to that ship and salvage what we need, whether they like it or not. Um, and as the issue ends, we see Bomo being pulled in for torture for information that, of course, he does not have, um, making it something that where we sort of feel like it's a heroic sacrifice on his part, but at the same time, you worry for the character because you know they could do something to him uh, thinking that he knows it and go to the extreme of possibly killing him, thinking that he's going to reveal it on the way to the grave, and yet he doesn't have the information to reveal. Um, as we shift into issue number four, better artwork finally returns. They still can't figure out the way that the uh, snout on Bomo was supposed to look. And they've made it a point to mention the fact that when they're torturing him, he's so short, they can tie down his arms, but they can't tie down his legs. So he fakes essentially being comatose or being knocked out, and then uses that as an opportunity to basically flip up onto his feet, use his horns to break one of his chains, one of the chains, in fact, the chain that has the little damaged part, because it's the same chain that uh, uh, Shirk Heron would have, been would have been held down with earlier, um, allowing him to get out, get a laser cutter, and then he's going to, he's looking all macho there, he's going to go and try to save the others. Yeah, Bomo Rambo. <laughs> exactly. He almost wanted to see him, and I, I introduced my wife to UHF, recently 
uh, just actually just within 24 hours when we were recording this. And I want to see uh, Kukruk there or Kukruk, uh, Bomo there, especially later in this this arc uh, when he's shooting down all the enemies, doing the the Weird Al version of Rambo going war, war, war as he's shooting, you know. Um, but we switch back uh, to the younglings and Chase Piru, um, who apparently has decided now that she is uh, an an older uh, Jedi amongst all these other Jedi that she's going to wear the uh, the lower hugging pants. As soon as I noticed the, the stuff they were doing with Chris, I wanted to see if they were doing it to anybody else. And sure enough, it seems like at least a little bit with Piru they do it, where all of a sudden her pants hang a lot lower than most people wear their pants. Um, that could just be a style thing. It could also be a sexualization thing. But they don't do it as much with her, which is good. Um, but then again, we didn't really see her all that much when the other artists seemed to be the one dominating. Now that we're back uh, to uh, Dave Ross, it seems like it's it's more subdued again, which is good. Did you notice that she did the uh, Power Ranger move there on the guards? When they come running at her, she's like, she does a force shove with her hand, but she's like, Sedwa! I'm like, what in the heck is Sedwa? Is that like a... a- a cuss? Is that like what the cry? Like, what is that? I, it threw me so off. I'm like, is she calling him by name? Did she recognize him? What? That's the name of her Zord, apparently. Uh, <laughs> and of course, it, she manages to, you know, she reveals the uh, the use of the Force to them. So now it's not just that they want the ship. They realize that they're Jedi and they can get a big bounty from the Empire well, um, what do you know? We didn't get whatever was supposed to be in that crate, but we may have just found something just as valuable. The Empire's offering a hefty bounty on Jedi, and we just found a whole lot of them. All right, that's just a little bit creepy hearing that type of voice for this Gotal character. He's, well, a, he's a Gotal is, redneck, is what he Yeah, is. well, what's funny is because, like, he says later, uh, one of the guys goes, what about the one Kalo shot? <laughs> That'll have to come out of Kalos' share. The Empire doesn't pay for dead Jedi. Why wouldn't they? I would think they'd rather have the Jedi dead unless they're planning on capturing and converting them, which would be a great story I'd love to see. I was hoping to see it with Ahsoka Tana. Not so much here. Um, and, of course, one of the, the members of the team, uh, when Piru comes forward and uses the Force, shoots her uh, through the upper right chest, like through, like I guess, just below her collarbone, not necessarily something that's going to kill her but something that takes her out of the fight briefly. Uh, and I see that, and I'm, I'm kind of sitting back and wondering, would that scene have been drawn the same way? Would that scene have played out quite the same way today? Because how overly sensitive it seems sometimes that our media uh, can be to current events. Because I look at that now with her being shot and laying there on the ground bleeding, uh, and I look at the guy that did it, this white guy with the kind of curly hair and the uh the 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 five o'clock shadow kind of thing going on and i can't help looking at them and thinking zimmerman martin i can't help but think of the the george zimmerman trayvon martin case there i don't think i you know anybody else would i think it's the fact that i've been so immersed in current events and and i was following the case so much but it, it jumps into my mind you know would you have had a white character just unceremoniously shoot a black character or would it have perhaps been one of the aliens doing it if this had been 2013 instead of being 2007, <laughs> 2008-ish? Um, but anyway, so uh, our characters back at Hakka Highs uh, are to be uh, be further tortured. 
We see Bomo manage to get his hands on a weapon, which looks very much like a standard semi-automatic earth pistol to the point where it looks at one point the way he's holding it as if he's just slapped in a, uh, a magazine, though I don't think that is necessarily the case. And sure enough, turns out, who else has managed to get there because they really weren't controlling her except putting her in slinky clothing and making her serve drinks, but Chris. Chris Tanzier is also safe. Uh, she hugs him. She's got a weapon. They're going to try to save them. And hey, guess what, guys? Chris is back. So what are we going to do? That's right. We'll change the way her face looks again. So we recognize her only really by the style of her hair from the last time we saw her and give her, if it's even possible, a skankier <laughs> way of showing the character. There's a point at which, you know, she's she's hugging him. She's standing there with the blaster, like, right behind him. We're good up to that point. And then they show a shot of her from basically her waist up where they played, they paid no attention to the detail on her face at all. Because her face looks nothing like Chris Tanzier the way we have ever seen her before. But they yeah. sure do make sure to have her breasts like, hanging there like a couple of bowling balls in this shirt that somehow is managing to stay up, probably with, you know, the Leia-style A New Hope tape thing going on. Um, again, it's it's unnecessary, but we've dealt with that. Um, their intention is then to uh, save the others. Chris has to shoot one of the guards in the head. It's the first time she's ever had I, to kill somebody, which I have to admit, this good. guard, I like this guard. I like the detail of the guard, like his weapon in the back. Like, you don't know if it's a gun or a sword and the way it's got the grippings and stuff. I like the alien. The, the guy himself was cool. And when he showed up, mm -hmm. I was like, oh, he's just a one and done. Darn. Yeah, he, he's, he's dead. Um, but they're going to go get to the armory and they're going to basically blow up. the. He's going to use explosives from that guard to blow up the door to the armory to get more weapons to go in and save everybody else. Meanwhile, uh, the Jedi students are taken away. Piru has been left for dead because, of course, you know, if they're wanting Jedi dead or alive and they're paying for it either way, then if you've got one that's mortally wounded, well, screw it. Leave her behind because you don't really need that money. That hey, didn't really make a whole quick, lot of sense to me. I want to ask you something because, like, when you're reading this, it's, you're reading it a little different than it's coming no, no, across I'm, I, No, I just, I just stuck with okay. one of the parallel I'm like, sides. I'm like, do, yeah. they, do they swap some no, pages just, here? Just okay. skipping the intercutting. Um, yeah, because I, I, I just like there, there are two scenes there between that intercutting. Those are two more moments where you see that the X on Crook's chest. Right. Uh, and I just I don't know. I, I found the savagery of his character in this moment. Like he's getting ready to go to war, uh, you know, and at the beginning they were talking about that, how the war still kind of like lives in his heart. And he's just trying to find peace and, and trying to come to grips with what's going on. But it's like now he's got no choice. It's kind of like the force is forcing him. Right, so he's he, basically we see the children being carted off. They're basically attached to leashes, more or less, to the back of a vehicle. Um, they're threatening to go faster if the kids don't shut up. Um, they're griping about how whiny the kids are and that sort of thing. Meanwhile, Kakruk has gotten to Piru, has used the Force to heal her, uh, even though she's now going to have to wear a sling at this point. Um, and they are going to go off and try to save the others. Um, you know, he says, you know, it's not much of a plan, but it's what they've got to do. Uh, Piru gets sent off on her own uh, to try to get close to where the children are going to be, basically hanging on to a log on the river. And that's when Kukruk walks out, and you get the definite uh, Rambo kind of vibe from the character as he's stalking off into the jungle you know, with his bow and arrow and such to go after them because he's handed off the lightsaber to Piru. Yeah, I shared this photo on our Facebook page. You know, Kukruk makes ready for war. I, I love this image. And, I mean... 
you know, as a Kukruk fan, there's only so many comics where you can see him illustrated, and this one has got some great shots of him. That moves us to issue five, and by then it's just back to just good old Dave Ross entirely, uh, finally with no Louie with him. Um, so the artwork is a little bit more consistent here. Uh, Speaking of consistent, though, yeah. I love when Bomo's got the gun and he's, like, getting ready for the fight. Like, this, this to me, this is the is the issue where Bomo's character kind of, mm-hmm. like, earns his place in the family. And at the same time, you know, what you've seen in the beginning, or, or should I even say at the end of the Republic line, you know, the fact that he was a warrior, he was a separatist, he was a soldier, and he's good at it. I mean, that that's him coming to his own right now and and it's more so you know you the reader you've already known it but this is the family the crew the umil are kind of getting to understand that he's got a little more to bring to the table than just a short stature and and a glowing mouth right and of course you know this is also the issue in which the way he's drawn starts to change yet again when shown from the side most of the time he has sort of the longer snout thing going on and looks very much like we've seen him in the past but for most of this issue we get a real sense of exhaustion from the character because they draw him looking like a an old man, basically. I mean, he looks like they've got uh, somebody from uh, – gosh, I can't remember the name. It's um, Walter Matthau, I guess. It's like they use part of like the bottom design of Walter Matthau's face for the way that they draw Bomo here. And Bomo looks like a really, really old human man wearing prosthetics. For a lot of what we see with this part of the story, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense why he shifts to that. I don't know oh, if he's supposed really? to be quite that old and and weathered. I but, didn't take it, it as old and weathered, though. I took it more as he was solemn because he I, – I was under the impression that he has come to the conclusion that the only way to get them out alive is to kill himself and take right. as many out as he can. Oh, yeah. And, and that's – I just assumed that that was what they were trying to per- and, put across. And I get that in the shot where it says, getting ready for the fight, and he's all geared up and stuff, you know. Um, he's got the gigantic blaster that's so big that it not only sticks out of that panel, it crosses over another panel, you know. He's ready to kick some butt, and thank goodness Chris, who's running around with him, for the most part is not overly sexualized in the issue. They do shots that don't highlight the, the cut of the dress. They make it something that's functional for the moment. Um, not like what was it called the Hawkeye project or whatever it is where they take um, women's poses in comics and show Hawkeye doing those same things to show just how <laughs> utterly ridiculous it is. Um, this issue isn't nearly as bad as the other ones, but you take the next page where they free Ratty from the big uh, uh, ball and chain that he's attached to. And there's a panel in which Bomo says, you know, it's not, but maybe we can use it to our advantage. Ratty, can you rig those grenades to explode remotely? Look at the way his face is drawn and tell me you can't see it as, well, it's not, but maybe we could use that to our advantage. Really? Yeah. yeah I, He's he got a Humphrey looks, Bogart kind of look to him or Alfred Hitchcock kind of. <laughs> an old, old, gigantic nosed man. And that's the thing. They, it's like they can't figure out whether the nose is part of a snout and his mouth goes off in that same kind of thing, almost like an alligator or a bird, or if it's just a nose, an enormous pointed nose and his mouth is back with the rest of his head. They can't figure out how to draw that. And it's the same stinking artist mm-hmm. in this issue. Yeah. It, it keeps shifting. Then, of course, next page, we get another Chris Tanzier that doesn't look even remotely like we've seen Chris before. They've completely changed her face. Now she looks like she's kind of a China doll, um, <laughs> as they plan to make I'm a Disney attack. princess. Maybe that's what it was. They were seeing into the future, 
and they want to make her into the next Disney princess. But usually Disney princesses don't wind up being turned into monsters, as we will eventually see. Um, so I say the attack finally goes down in both parts of this parallel storyline. See, I get it. It's called parallels because there are these parts that, you know, are parallel. Yeah, yeah, we get it. And um, we also get there wasn't enough story here for either of them to be able to be told separately. Um, so we see Bomo come in, uh, saves the days, uh, frees him. Chris shows up, again, looking nothing facially like the Chris that we'd seen before, at least initially, when she's carrying her big Rambo-type weapons um, to help load for Bomo. We get a great moment between the two where basically she's not willing to let him die and sacrifice himself. Um, he wants them to live. He can't uh, afford to lose them all, even if it means losing himself. She sticks behind and he's like, okay, well, all right, stay close and stay behind me. Keep your head down. I have to kill a lot of bad guys now. Because he was expecting just to have to fight a holding action and then die, and now he actually has to win. Meanwhile, uh, Kakrook has this interesting thing going on where he's firing off uh, arrows from the from the jungle, and Piru, who's gotten close, is using the force to cause those arrows to then come down and kill members of Lumbra's crew. And I'm assuming this means that Kakrook can't sense where they are or see where they are, because otherwise he shouldn't need Piru to be the one to do that. He should be able to do that himself, I would have thought. Um, mm. It's a cool idea, right? One shoots, the other one guides it in. Very cool. Would make for some cool co-op gameplay if they were to make this type of thing into <laughs> a video game. But from the standpoint of, you know, what we're seeing here, it doesn't seem like it's all that necessary. I mean, heck, Starkiller could do it constantly in The Force Unleashed. Um, well, maybe Kakrux like Karani. He just lacks a little TK action. I mean, we don't know. I do like, though, that right before the attack went down, the way he goes back, I mean, uh, Piri, she's like, I wonder how long before Master Kruk makes his move. And then you hear, and they're all like, what's that? Some jungle critter. And, you know, he's standing on the ridge at nights, his lightsaber. He's got the arrow and bow in one hand, lightsaber in the other. And he goes, surrender your prisoners now or face the consequences. And they go, get him and start shooting. So he gave them the opportunity before killing him. So, I mean, he's still stuck to Jedi morals. And that, to me, at this point, when you're in the dark times, that's important. And I think it's interesting that he does the whole, like, the, the Obi-Wan Kenobi-style yell thing. Uh, I initially thought that was what the kids were were noticing, but you, he does utter a couple of lines before the kids say, you know, it's Master Crook. But I wonder if they were to put this out again, would they have to do something to change the way that they say that? I mean, because, you know, how Lucas is with growls. How many crate Dragon Howls have we gotten for Ben? Like, three of them? Four of them now? <laughs> um, but we get the, the instance in which... Uh, Piru goes to try to save the kids while Bomo, uh, in the other location, is fighting sort of a holding action. And, of course, now he looks like the Bomo we've seen in most of the times we've seen him, where his mouth looks more like a crocodile style or a dinosaur type of mouth, where his mouth takes all the way up to the end of his snout, um, which is my preferred look for the character. And uh, rather, of course, than allowing themselves uh, to surrender or, or giving Kakrook the satisfaction, he's angry and he comes in and he's killing them, including uh, slicing uh, Lumbra in half. Uh, meanwhile, Bomo has just killed pretty much everybody that was coming after them, and his snout has apparently retracted somehow again. Um, and the crew shows up and they're like, oh, well, I guess we don't need to help after all. He seems to have killed everyone. Uh, Congratulations, you're part of the crew. That's awesome. And we see um, Chris back again. And let me go back here one second. Yes, okay. 
Uh, she does, during the process of getting loaded up with weapons, um, when she comes back to help Bomo, she did take the time to change her clothes. She's back in the tank top thing again, and again, to his credit, it would appear that the artist of this issue doesn't make that a sexualized thing. It's just functional wear in terms of this, the way that he frames the shots. It's much more respectful of um, that particular character from a modesty standpoint. Well, um, suddenly the tank top's bottom has, has changed because now yeah, the, it tucks in. <laughs> yeah, well, that or that or just before they were pulled down a little bit. But yeah, and now it tucks in so you don't see the, um, the whatchamacallit, you don't see the G-string part sticking out. Another um, image I shared on our Facebook page is that image where Bomo's standing there with all the dead bodies. He's got the two smoking guns. I shared that one, but the line I love is the first thing he says, uh-huh. I think I got that out of my system. Like, oh, <laughs> okay. And, and, you know, sure, Karen's like, you know, I should hope so. And he's like, okay, that's better. You know, I feel much better now. I've taken out my anger. Boy, wouldn't it be nice if Das were around so I could forgive him personally, but we're not going to get to see that for a few arcs here. Um, and of course, though, while we get an, a satisfactory ending, in my opinion, to the Kukruk part of the story, where Kukruk is basically like, look, you know, we're going to repair the ship, we're going to find somewhere secure for you and the younglings to live, but they saw me in action, they saw me in anger, I don't want that to be a constant reminder, I don't want that to scar them, um, I'll check on you from time to time, which seems to kind of fade later, um, but I, my plan is to check on you from time to time, um, and for you to help train them as opposed to me, which sort of is transferring some of the authority over to Piro. And that, I think, works well, even if it doesn't seem like that's the way it plays out later. But um, the ending to the Bomo and the crew of the Unpronounceable Ship arc, that could have been the end of a freaking Saturday morning special, you know, the more you know kind of stuff, right? <laughs> it could have ended with, you, all right? I learned it by watching you, like a PSA or something, because it's, uh, uh, you, you have Bomo say, I kind of lost it, huh? What with Sniffles getting killed and you being tortured, and I guess I'm still not over what happened to my family. And that's great and all, that fits, that's a good uh, self-referential thing, a good bit of self-reflection for Bomo. And then Chris has to come in and and We've all cr- lost family, Bomo. Yeah. But we found each other and formed a new one, and now we found you too. Okay, and insert Battlestar Galactica reference. And yep. so say we all. Let's get back to the ship, which would work you fine. You mean back home? Yeah. If it wasn't for Chris saying you mean back home, it wouldn't have felt this bad. But this is the kind of thing I would expect from Ewoks. This is the kind of final dialogue I would expect on Care Bears. And Ewoks and Care Bears are both made by Nelvana, so basically the same company. Uh, Man, it's just one of these things where you're figuring that, you know, one of these characters, as they're walking back to the ship, as as our focus is apparently on this bug in the front of the shot on the left-hand frame here, um, you would think that one of them is going to be walking by with this big orange circular object because they sure seem to be carrying a lot of cheese with them as they leave. Um <laughs> I don't know. It's this is an art that has a lot of artistic, as in visual art, the actual art in the issues, not artistic in terms of style, um, but artistic failings. Again, the art doesn't always serve to tell the story. The art shifts a lot. They still don't know what to do with Bomo, and they oversexualize Chris as we got to. Um, but the early parts of this story, with Order sixty six and the flashback to what happened uh, with Chris's son, those are very impactful. I wish the one with Chris's son had played out in some other way other than it just really being an emotional impact for this 
arc and not really much else anywhere else. The rest of the story feels very rote to me, but I guess you just sort of need a time where we see Bomo become fully integrated into the group and him dealing with some of his demons from before. Mm-hmm. And we need to have some way, if the goal is to put the container with, uh, well, our vector uh, MacGuffin in it uh, onto one of these asteroids or whatever so that we can have the setting for the next arc, then yes, they got that done too and played off the references to that mysterious package back in the first arc. It is a competent, I would say perhaps above average arc, at least as far as the first half goes. Um, The rest of it mostly just kind of average. Um, I wish that this had been where we where we picked up and it continued on in the quality level either of the previous arc or this one. But it is after issue number 10 where things start going down the tubes. Uh, it will be in very unsatisfactory uh, vector segment. After that, we wind up getting Blue Harvest in which I don't care about what's going on. Half the time, you can't even tell what the heck's going on unless you go back and reread the issues because so much is lost between issues. You know, we wind up getting out of the wilderness where characters are supposed to be in love when we've got little to no hint of that before until finally getting something better, a little, with Fire Carrier that finally ends the storyline of Kakrook and this arc. Uh, and Have we get you read something the third issue yet? Of A Spark Remains? Yeah. Uh, no, I haven't read the Spark. I don't think I've read the Spark Remains number three yet because I'm still waiting oh, for it to come in the mail I, at this point. But, I'm, I'm curious how you're going to like that. That well, I, issue I like, to me was the best so far. I like A Spark Remains so far, but it's taken us a long way to get there. Um, it's one of yeah. these things where if I was someone who wasn't an ongoing Star Wars comic collector and got them all or, or was doing it, reading it for the continuity aspect, if I wasn't one of those fans that are the reason why Lucas can put out the same stuff or Lucasfilm can put out the same stuff over and over again or put out mediocre stuff and will still buy it, if I wasn't one of those fans that are basically the problem a lot of the time, um, this is a series I would have given up on. You know, this is a series that just like the New 52 with Dark or with uh, DC Comics, I read the first two uh, – some issues of the New 52 I read the first three issues of. Some I read the first two issues of. All of them I read the first one issue of whenever they relaunched uh, uh, the DC Universe. But after that point, I gave up. It could not hold my interest anymore. I was not going to spend the money on it. Were this not Star Wars and it was just another series of this quality level as it progressed – in terms of the fluctuation of the quality level, there's no way I would have kept reading it to the point where I would have gotten to a Spark Remains and have said, hey, maybe some of this stuff is actually going to pay off. Because the stuff that happens in between now and then is so below average. It is so – again, it's like we said in the previous arc. It's, it's like they're striving for mediocrity sometimes now, and that's the benchmark for a lot of stuff. Um, and that's kind of what we get here. It's like as long as we tell a story and get it out without being delayed over and over again, well, that's a good enough tale. Um, I can't tell you how frustrating it was to go from Republic back then to Dark Times being told this is essentially a replacement continuation series and having the quality level from Republic to Dark Times take such a freaking nosedive. And again, I will say that in the middle arcs of this series, between now and and the beginning of A Spark Remains, I would argue that the entire reason, or at least 80 to 90% of the reason why this series wasn't canceled when so many others like Invasion were, is because it's written by the guy in charge of the Star Wars line at Dark Horse. And he's not going to kill his own baby. Mm-hmm. 
But it's just, it's not a series that manages to capture anything beyond this point. This was the, the end of my interest in the series until A Spark Remains. Um, I don't know what they could have done differently other than this giving something that was a little more dynamic, perhaps, or something that's a little more compressed in time. Um, it just, it starts to fall flat from here. And that's unfortunate because now we've got three sets of characters to care about at this point, hopefully. We got Kakrook and the, the Padawans, who at this point, you know, we at least to a degree care about, even if you're not a big Kakrook fan. He, it plays well for him in this arc. He has his best moment probably ever in the early part of this arc. We have the crew of the unpronounceable ship that we are slowly getting to know a little bit better, even if it seems like Jenks being taken away and Sniffles dying has very little emotional impact on the reader or really on the crew, except for yeah, just no, briefly no. because of everything that's going on. But we've also got Das Janir out there somewhere, and he'll be coming back into play um, until we finally start to bring these storylines back together. But at this point, I'm hoping for something that ramps up from here and it won't. And Vector, the next arc, should have been the wow moment. They were hyping that up so much and how it's going to affect everything in the storylines from here on. The, the character changes, they're not going to be escapable. I even say something like that in the, the letters pages of one of these issues. Yeah. It is going to be the biggest letdown in Dark Times and in the pages of uh, Rebellion. Um, albeit a decent entry minus the KOTOR artwork in KOTOR and and legacy, which of course is what we're building up to to eventually talk about Vector uh, in all of its forms, seeing as how we're going arc by arc through those series, in case you guys haven't figured out where we're heading with this yet. Yeah, you know, like I said at the beginning, the parallels for me, it was Kukruk's story and more Bomo's story. You know, by the time we get to Bomo's end, as you said, the more you know that moment, uh, it is it is him getting over, you know, all the mistakes he's made so far, him finding a new family, him being you know, brought back into the fold because not only did he lose his actual physical family, but he also lost his people. I mean, you know, when he went looking for his family, there were very few survivors that were even there and they're all in slavery now. And that's also a choice that, you know, he helped make. So, you know, to, to have a community to be back again, you know, that that's something for his character that we can now move his character forward. Uh, the interesting thing with Kukruk though, you know, you were, you were mentioning about it, but, uh, he goes, in trying to say something I cared about, I may have lost it forever. He's all, after we repair this ship, we'll find somewhere secure for you and the younglings to live. I'll check on you from time to time, but I won't stay. I don't want to be a constant reminder of them what happened here. I see the fear in their eyes and in yours. Do you think they'll ever get over seeing me as I was tonight? Will you, Piru? I don't know, Master. I don't know. And I like how it ends with the I don't know. You know, the first issue ends with I don't know for both parallel stories and this one ends in, in kind of the same way uh, you know you're still in that dark time you don't know what's going to happen things are still very dark uh, it's it's a dangerous place to live um, you know Kukruk th the way he said it where he's like I may come and go that kind of fits with what I was thinking about the character because like you always had the feeling from what you get in the guides and stuff that he was kind of like doing his own thing but at the same time he was responsible for this group of Padawans so here's a way where you can have him still as the Yoda-esque character for this group but yet because he has this moment that lives in the back of his mind he also goes off and does a lot of solo type things. So you could have adventures with him if you wanted to, where he's doing his own thing and kind of just checking in on the other groups. So there's that potential later for more stories with Kukruk. I like that. 
uh, I love when when there's potential that's not always delivered on. Sometimes I hate it because I want to see it delivered on. But in this case, when we're walking into a Star Wars with Episode Seven and the EU being put on hold more and more, the fact that there are open plot lines. To me, I think these open plot lines are going to be the the resounding call of EU fans come mid-sequel trilogy, and we're sick and tired of the EU that we loved being put on hold while a new EU is forming, and these plot holes are going to be what we're going to be like, these are the stories we want to see, these are the stories we're demanding that come out, because we have followed your original universe, and just because you've decided to continue with this other one, we don't want the old one to stop, and those plot holes now are, are beacons of light for the multiverse that I hope to see someday. And you know what they're going to say? They're going to say the same thing they've said every other time that type of thing has come up, where it's come down to what the longtime EU readers want versus what Lucasfilm is going to do. They're going to say, yeah, but Star Wars is a broader franchise than the audience that we have, that those vocal fans only make up a small percentage of the overall target audience, and the uh, uh, purchasers of these products, therefore, we must make them more accessible, etc., etc. And look at all the new fans that are going to be brought in by this new set of movies, just like new fans were brought in by the Clone Wars, just like new fans were brought in by the prequels. Yeah, all those new fans are just going to make that vocal part of the community an even smaller percentage. Sorry, too bad, so sad, nothing we're going to do about it. That's the same kind of line, albeit said in, more, model. Said, said in a more diplomatic way. That we've heard over and over again when it comes to going back to some of the, the older wells and why it is that sometimes they make these decisions. It, it is a business. I think that's part of why we have the over-sexualization of the women half the time. Uh, because this is a business and they believe their target audience wants to see that and needs to see it. Um, I will say one thing for the artwork though. On these, uh, if you have the individual covers to these, the artworks are kind of the artwork is kind of neat. Uh, we have a cool shot of Kakrook uh, swinging his lightsaber so hard that his hat is falling off on the cover to issue number six. Uh, we get, uh, what's his name, uh, Hakahai, the, the, the menacing uh, alien betrayer, uh, on the cover to issue number eight. Issue number nine gives, uh, excuse me, yeah, issue number eight. Uh, issue number nine gives us Lumbra looking very, very angry, uh, so angry that his mouth is doing something kind of crazy, and it looks like his arm is swinging back so far it's probably out of its socket. And we get a cool shot of Bomo blasting away uh, at the others, uh, the uh, uh, Hakahai's men, on the cover to issue number 10. And then we get an interesting cover to issue number 7. It says, A Sacrifice Made in Vain, in which they show this uh, Caucasian blonde-haired character that uh, I'm not sure we got introduced to in the story. Oh, no! No, wait! That's Chris, except she's clothed. My bad. <laughs> nice. Yeah, well, I know. It was a long up. way to get to one joke, but seriously. Yeah, it's the most clothes she wears in the entire arc. <laughs> yeah. And she. I think she's got the uh, the shapeshifter award for this issue. You know, I mean, that girl changed and, and morphed more times than even Bomo's nose. But don't worry, you can change your face as much as you want because that's not what they expect people to be looking at apparently anyway. True. True. <laughs> Consistent features on a female with boobies? <laughs> I think you overestimate their attention span. I, I think this is uh, body continuity. <laughs> 
Well, that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you guys and girls once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on iTunes, which, you know, we want reviews. So, you know, this is our moment where we solicit it. Get us reviews. Tell us how good, bad, happy or sad we make you. Uh, and also, we're on Stitcher now, if you didn't know about that. You can go check it out there. You can also find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page at SW Beyond Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It is our home base. It's the best way to interact with us. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or if you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run from our sponsor, audible.com, to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the expanded universe, the EU, or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just may be right for you. And, of course, be sure to check out that Amazon.com shop that my wife and I run. It is Lil Joe Collectibles, so it's Amazon.com slash shops, slash L-I-L-J-O Collectibles, all as one word. Uh, some geeky stuff on there, uh, comics, books, uh, textbooks, in some cases if you're in the medical field and whatnot, uh, Barbie stuffing, you name it, lots of stuff on that particular store. Uh, and every little bit certainly helps. Also, we have one more sponsor. It's Big Bad Toy Store. Catch their end of the summer sale with reduced prices 15% to 50% off on over 5,000 items. Just go to StarWarsReport.com toys to find out more. And if you want to support us in general, you go to www.StarWarsReport.com support and find out more as well. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Sing. Thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that my nose will stop burning because as I was making my final comments about Chris Tanzier being closed, clothed on that cover, I turned to my right and I saw the cover of Star Wars Insider number 144. It's Leia in the metal bikini. And I was taking a drink at the time. <laughs> like, oh, there's too much the sexualization in Star Wars. Hunt spew. As, as, yeah. as the doctor, uh, what is it, uh, Kroger's Dr. K, Dr. Pepper equivalent starts to burn its way through my sinus passages. In a minute, you're going to have a nose like Bomo. <laughs> God, shoot, in a minute, I'm going to have a nose like freaking Crook. <laughs> I'm going to have that duh look on my face with the, with the fangs. Roar. <laughs> 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 Alright. Poor Bomo when he gets a or, or, uh, not Bomo, Kakrook, when he gets a headache, that's a big head to have a headache with. <laughs> yeah. Although I do think I figured out what his Sith name would be. What's that? Uh, it'd be a callback to Captain Power, it'd be Lord Dread because of his hair. <laughs> Lord Dread, nice. Lord Dread. Or Lord uh, Dreads. Yeah. <laughs> really? That's right, Whistler here! That's right, Whistler. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. 
I am in the wrong. I knew this looked wrong. That's right, Whistler. We're <laughs> jumping ahead. You are right to be mocking me. You You're wrong, Whistler. <laughs> Shut the f up. <laughs> That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 92 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website. What the f***? <laughs> what was that? Ah, that's me not shutting the frickin' uh, soundboard off like and then laying my hands on it. All of a sudden, Vader's coming in here to kill you for botching that first couple of openings. <laughs> Blaster rifles at the ready. <laughs> I find your lack of reading the script disturbing. Yeah, you'd think by now he'd have it down. Yippee! And when you are a Jedi Whippet, you must whip it. Whip it. Good. Or, you know, something like that. Mark, if you're speaking, you're muted. Or we're just losing the connection. <laughs> <laughs>